Well, welcome everyone. This is Alejandro Garcia Maya. I want to welcome Carrie Smith with us, and we have a lot to cover. I'll give a little highlight of of what we're going to do, and we'll go from there. So, on my end, you all know me already. If not, Alejandro Garcia Maya. I am the founder of the TechStars Alumni Group, and it's a group where it's created by and for Techstar founders. And this is our web series. We get the opportunity to host unicorn founders and cover lessons learned and best practices. As a reminder for everyone, when I ask you to please keep your video on, mute on, update your screen. So it says your first name, last name, this, uh, company name. This will be come in handy during the Q&A session. Text your questions. Any, as we're having a conversation here with, with Carrie, te text your questions to Flor or Deborah. They'll send a quick text on the group chat just so you, you can reach out to them. Having said that, I want to welcome our very special guest, Carrie Smith, and we very much appreciate your time. Thank you for giving back to your founder community and for joining us. So thank you, Carrie. Welcome. Thank you very um, much for having me. I'm going to give a quick little background on you, and then we're going to jump right into it. Everyone here, I'm sure, has come across it. That's why they're here. But Carrie founded Big Ass Fans, which is an amazing name. I love the name of that company. In 1999, and over a span of 20 years, bootstrapped it and ended up selling it for $500 million in 2017. He then moved on to create Unorthodox Ventures, a VC fund that helps founders build successful brands. And there's a lot to unpack. And as always, very little time. So let's let's get going. So, Carrie, before Big Ass Fans, you had a previous business venture. It was called Spring Cool. What were some lessons learned from that venture and how did that journey from Sprinkle lead you to big ass fans? And it's it, it feel free to share what Sprinkle was and then kind of take it from there if you like. Yeah. What Sprinkle was was a method of cooling buildings, large structures with typically very large roof areas. We're talking acres, many, many acres. Okay. Massive and industrial, I guess. Yes, yes. And we did it by evaporating very small amounts of water from the surface. And we were able to keep those facilities marginally cooler. The lesson to be learned from something like that is if you don't do market research, you're going to get nailed. And <laughs> I learned an awful lot doing that, but I was basically, I started it when I was in my late 20s. And I knew absolutely nothing about business, absolutely nothing. And, and so I learned it and that's the way I learned it. We did an awful lot of marketing, creative marketing, sales, I, and, and we worked on the technology as well, though the technology is relatively simple and straightforward, but it was a situation where if I'd thought about it, or if I'd done more research in the beginning. I would recognize that the market was very small or relatively small. Mm. I mean, we never, we were never able to, to, to sell more than a million and a half dollars annually. 
but we did sell in, into not just into the states, but obviously into the southern states and overseas to some degree. But what drove me, I, I think the thing I learned from that was I learned marketing because mm. we didn't have enough money to advertise. And this, a lot of this was pre-internet. And so we used print media publications to market. And so I wrote an awful lot explaining what we did, how we did it, the, the methods I wrote all the time. And one of the, I'm sorry. No, no, go on. Sorry, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Well, you have to, you have to interrupt me because I just. <laughs> no, no, you're about to say something that I, I want to, I want to hear. I don't know. And, and all I was going to say was, is that's what basically writing for the various publications is what introduced me to the, the fans and the, and the, and the, and, and started us on that journey. But that was, heaven forbids, that was, that took me a number of years, well over a decade to get my head out of my, no, I, I didn't get my head out of my ass. I put my head in my ass <laughs> and, and that's where we got, that's where we came up with the fans. But uh, when, but when, yeah, you, was, when you, when you're reflecting and telling us about lessons learned and you said, know your market, the other piece to this is if it lasted 10 years, would you have, even if you knew a market, I guess if you knew a market, you wouldn't have pursued it? Or, I mean, at the end of the day, this kind of led you to something else, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm I'm very persistent, but not very smart, but very persistent. <laughs> and And it did, it was useful in the sense that I did learn a market and the market I learned was the uh, industrial and distribution facility market and all of the people, I mean, the types of people that worked in those markets and the way they communicated. So it, it didn't have to take as long as it did, but that's what I did learn. And I also learned how to, well, how to communicate with those people. And when, so, when did you carry, when you... I heard this story and I thought it was really cool, which is when you came across what before Big S Fans was called Big S Fans, I believe it was called H, let me, let me pull it up, HVLS. Correct. Um, and, and so you, at, at the time that you came, can you share a little bit about how you actually came across H, HVLS and what they were doing and how it kind of all unfolded? Of course. Well, it again. It I think it it started from from publications because, as I said, I wrote for an awful lot of them, and that naturally I read all of them. And in one of them, I noted this somebody had this big fan, and it was on the ground of all places to have a fan. But I noticed it because I was always very interested in fans, and just in general, because it sure seemed a hell of a lot easier to move air than it did to mist water. Mm. And, and so I saw this and, and I called the people up. They only ran two ads and I called them up and I said, if this is, is, is this is what I think it is. And if it's got the potential, I think it does, then this is your lucky day because I'd be happy to, to, you know, to take this on, to have a worldwide 
sales organization, a marketing organization. And they were, the guys doing it had gotten the idea from a, an individual that worked at UC Davis in the ag department and their interest was cooling cows. And none of them knew anything about business, really. It was just, you know, this, this fellow had the idea and he asked his, one of his buddies to build it and they built it for him and that was that. And one of the first things they asked me to do after we made this agreement, it was, it was interesting, was to collect, they had made 17 fans to that point and they asked me to see if I could collect the money from the people that had the fans because they didn't. Oh, they hadn't even um, gotten paid. They they, no, they had really? sold 17 fans, but hadn't, hadn't actually gotten yeah. paid for it. Okay. So you were a collector. Were, yeah, I was for a little bit. I wasn't very good though, because nobody would pay this for them. So, <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So, but anyway, so we, we struck a deal and part of the deal was when I was able to sell a certain number of the fans that I was able to buy the IP for 400,000 bucks. I did, we did, we bought it and we started, we started what was HVLS fan company at the time in the very beginning, but we quickly changed it to big ass fans. And the reason for that really was inevitably when we when people called us on the phone to talk about this and we would answer hvls fans which was high volume low speed because that that's what they it was a very that's very a small relatively small yeah with a very large the the diameter of the fans was up to 24 feet very large but operated with a horse and a half two horse motors so very small input anyway they would we would answer the phone hvls fan company and there would be a pause and they'd say are you those guys that make those big ass fans and it's like oh yeah yeah i guess we are and so we changed the name and it was about a year and a half in that we changed the name and it was very interesting because we got it was it was probably one of the better things we ever did that is truly because listening people, to your customer. Literally. Yeah, no, right. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, but who, we, got, who, we got so much pushback. You did? Oh, yes. I'm sure. I'm sure that was very different to, to be able to brand yourself that way. What, what mm. problem was, just a quick little recap for everyone else. What problem was Big Ass Fans solving? Is this... Well... Mm -hmm. In this country, in the South, typically large facilities, whether they be warehouses, distribution centers, or factories, are not air conditioned. And there's nothing quite like being in a three or 400,000 square foot plant, no windows, no conditioning in the middle of the summer. I, it's just very hot. It was always and I know this makes if this is intuitive but it was always significantly warmer within the plant than it was outside so if you were if it was 90 degrees outside it'd be 95 degrees inside and the way they solved this problem was they bought small fans I mean they just bought the little pedestal fans I mean you can see them at Home Depot or Lowe's and and you imagine what that was like 
in, in a 300, 400,000 square foot facility, in addition to the fact that not everybody had fans, that people fought over them, which caused all sorts of problems with the maintenance supervisors and directors. So I'm guessing, exactly. So a lot of a lot of the big sale was productivity, I'm guessing, you know, increased productivity from the workforce while at the same time lowering energy costs. I mean, was that was that a thing? Yeah. And yeah, the energy savings were about 30 times. I mean, you spent it was ridiculous. It was about 3% of what it would be to actually use all of these smaller fans and they were the the ceiling fans they were these were ceiling fans and so they would be 23 40 feet in the air and far beyond the control of the individuals working on the floor and so in terms of in terms of disagreements relating to fans i mean you didn't have them i mean we cooled a whole or we were able to move air throughout very very large spaces and uh, I, I have, and, I have, and, a, when I saw, sorry, and by the way, I, I apologize that there might be a lag too, a tiny little lag. Apologies on that. When you, when you decided that so far, this is, this seems to be working, right? There, there are warehouses, they're beginning to purchase our fans. How did you do it? You mentioned that at the time, before you introduced your product, there were there were fans that were fifty dollars. I mean, they were not too expensive. Sure. And then your fans, if I'm not mistaken, were five thousand dollar fans. What led you to believe that this would work? Right? If if you say, all right, people are currently solving this particular problem with fifty dollar fans. What we need to do is introduce $5,000 fans, right? Like what led you to believe that this could work? Well, it, it, the, the answer is one, the $50 fans were not really a, a, a good solution. I mean, you it again, I don't know if you've ever worked in a place like this, but it's if you buy one of the pedestal fans and let's imagine you're working at a workstation then conceivably, I mean, you can put the fan on, turn it on, have it, you know, Alejandro's got his fan that's working, he's fine. But typically in these facilities, there's a lot of movement. They move all over the place. And consequently, the single fans, the small pedestal fans just didn't cut it. And they needed a holistic, or I thought they needed, and I was right, that they needed a holistic solution to the problem. And when you, when you start looking at, at these small fans, they're fractional motors and fractional motors, meaning less than one horse on the, on the pedestal type of fan, they use, relatively speaking, a considerable amount of energy, much more energy than, than a larger. I mean, the larger the motor, the less in, in our situation, based on the amount of work we were able to get out of it, the less energy we used. And so any one of the, these facilities, even with 100,000 or even with 50,000 square feet, you could get a much better application or much better distribution of the air. And though the upfront cost was, was significantly higher, the operating cost was much, much lower. And of course, we recognized that the, the cost was, was what it was because that's what it had to be. 
but we made a big deal out of quality. And I, as a matter of fact, I'm here in Austin and there's a facility here that bought fans 20 something years ago and they still operate. I mean, they're outdoors and they still operate. It's, and that's what we, we were always very, very big on. This is the last fan you're gonna to have to buy for your facility. You don't have to worry about it anymore. And buy it, uh, and then you forget. You you forget about it. It won't be a problem for exactly for future. Right. Did you ever did you ever have to test your pricing at all? And are there are there ways in which? Yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah. Well, the way we tested the pricing was well. I don't know. This may sound silly, but because I knew the market and I knew the individuals that were buying within that market. I knew that they had a $5,000 a month, typically, that a, a maintenance facilities guy could spend $5,000 a month, you know, on his own account. And so the first, amazingly enough, I don't know how this happened, the sales price of the fans, the first fans were, they were $47.95. And then with the controller, oops, it was just under $5,000. And, and that's what determined that price. And it was interesting because we would get some people, and again, we didn't publish this. This was because we used our own salespeople and so it wasn't published. Um, but it was interesting. There were probably more people that told me in the very beginning, the first couple of years, that they were amazed at the, at the cost that, or the price. They were, they were shocked that it was so low. As many people told me that, as told me, you know, you guys are raping and pillaging the market, but this is just too much money. And, and so to those people, of course, we said, you know, F off, you, you don't have to buy it. <laughs> uh, and, and, uh, but I, I think that what happened was, and, and it's interesting, again, it, the industrial market, that particular market is good because those people, they really, all they care about is results. I mean, they really, that's it. And for them to be able to move air over 10, 15, 20,000 square feet with one or with a two horsepower motor was something that was going to last for 20 years and you didn't have to mess with it. It was like, oh, that's, that's like a no brainer. And, and over the years, of course, we raised the price and to the about when I sold it, it was somewhere around the average was about ten thousand dollars. Of course, different product, slightly different product. Yeah, it evolved. And when I, I want to do a, a quick little switch here in in terms of team and culture and recruiting talent, what what do you believe the role of a CEO founder should be, and does that role change as as your team grew? Yeah, of course. I mean, when I started, I was the chief salesman and, and at the end I was just the chief big ass. And, uh, and over that period of time though, what I thought was important, what was important about, about the CEO is that you set the tone, that you set the culture. And I mean, you give direction to the, to the company and to the people that work there. And if you're not, I mean, I've read stories about or listen to people say, well, I, you know, I want to, how do I develop a culture? Well, 
the only way to develop a culture is to live it and and the person that has to live it that personifies the culture is the ceo and that's and i think that's what makes if, if you're a leader if you're going to be a leader that's that's what you ought to be doing and and we were very very focused very focused on the customer and the experience of the customer i mean we checked we had one department all they did was call customers after you bought the fan and you installed it to see what it was about it that you didn't like how could we improve whatever we were doing and so it was a constant feedback loop we also spent a lot of resource on customer service and to make sure that if something went wrong or if there was a question that needed to be answered that we, we were on it. We were on it very, very quickly. I mean, we did some things. I remember one time we sold a fan to a fellow actually that was in Florida and he was opening a store and the people that came to install this fan wasn't our company, but they knocked off a spray head, a fire, a sprinkler head and flooded the shop. And, and he was desperate to make sure that he was going to open on, I don't know, after the weekend. And one of the things he was very concerned about was the fans, because I, to be honest with you, I can't remember why I was that concerned about it. And we said, fine. We, we sent people down. This was on a Friday. We sent people down on Friday to work over the weekend to get him up and running. And we didn't, we weren't even paid for that. I mean, we were, we were so concerned about what he thought and what the, his potential customers might think about the shop that that we did that and i think that if you treat the customers in that way they remember it and it's and it's again the people that we dealt with they're very it's very cut and dry for them i mean it's dollars and cents you have to keep things up and running if if they're not up and running then the opportunity cost is excessive and so it makes it easier it's easier than dealing with homeowner i suppose your your focus then on customer feedback constantly looking at how you can improve the product would would that be one of the my my next question was going to be that reflecting back on the success of the company are there certain behaviors or there certain strategies that you pursued that gave you a sweet sauce, you know, that sweet sauce, that, that magical power to be able to be better than, than your competitors. I'm guessing one of them was that customer feedback. So you're, you're focused completely on how can the customer be happy? What's not making them happy and how can we fix that? What was that very different from what like others were doing? Did you pay attention to what was, what, what was available out there? In, in terms of your competitors? Uh, we paid, I, I only paid attention to what, what we were doing. That was the only thing to me. And I think that that's the way you have to be. You shouldn't be worried about what your competition is doing. The other thing, if you think about it, is in order to treat the customers that way, you're, you're dependent on the people that are working with you to treat the customers that way. And in order for that to happen, you have to treat the your your coworkers as as well as you treat the customers and we did that i mean we paid 
well, gosh, we paid 30% more than was average in the States, 40% more than was average in Kentucky. We had, every year we had bonuses. The bonuses were distributed to everybody. Typically they averaged out to about a month's salary and and we did all sorts of things. And, so and taking care of the team eventually took care of the customer. Yep. And and I think too that that built, and you talk about a culture and you talk about marketing, that that sort of thing, taking care of the people, taking care of the customers, that sort of thing was very appealing, uh, typically to people that don't feel like they're well taken care of, i.e. people outside of the company. Mm. And I think that it, it, we had people call us, I know, and say, you know, I've been waiting a long time to buy a fan. I just, I wanted to, to, to buy, buy the fan from you guys. I wanted to do this. Or if they were an architect, they wanted to, to, to write that on the drawing that they were putting in a big ass fan. It became, it became a thing. I, I think a lot of people don't have especially, you know, nice jobs and especially in, in industrial settings. They imagined that, that we were, you know, that we were fun, that we were, people liked working at the company and, and, and they wanted to be associated with that, even in a very, you know, in tangential way that they wanted to be associated with that. So that when, was interesting. So it, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. You're going to say one more thing. No, no, that's okay. I was, all I was going to say was it all built the whole thing comes together when you look at it that way. And, and it was a self-perpetuating entity in that, in that regard. When, when you sold big ass fans and you sold it for 500 million, I don't know if this is correct, but I thought I heard you in one of the stories say that it just sounded when they asked you why 500 million, you said it just sounded like a good number. <laughs> yeah, that's not the smartest thing I ever did, but but I mean I I tell I tell you what it says, which is maybe not good, but I never really thought about selling the business. I it 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 I mean you know I just that wasn't my thing, hmm. and and so when I got to the point where I just got that was just fed up with something. And I said that I, the first number I said was 400 million and, and, and the fellow I was talking to said, oh, really? Okay. You mean you'd walk away? Yes. Yes. I'd do it. And uh, then I walked out of the room and then I came back in and I said, no, make that 500 million. That sounds <laughs> a lot. And, and, but I should have put more, I mean, that's silly. I mean, you think about it, that's silly, 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 but at the time it, I had a program, a SARS program, which is stock appreciation rights. And so at that point, I had enough people in it that it seemed to me that 500 million, I, I don't know what they ever thought the company was worth, but, but that at that point, there would be a lot of people that make a significant amount of money. Mm. And when we sold it, I wrote the checks that totaled about $50 million dollars. To these people that worked with me wow. and which honest to God was the best thing I've ever done. It was yeah, so cool. super special. Yeah. It must've felt amazing. It, it was, it was very special. It's hard to describe that. Honestly, that's 50 million bucks. I never missed. And, but any, and we made, I think we had like 11 or 12 multimillionaires and 
you know, some bunch Incredible. of millionaires and then, and then, and then everybody else that, that was in the program. And there were about, it wasn't everybody. It was uh -huh. about 150, 160 people, but it was spread all through. It wasn't just the, the guys and gals working in the right. offices. Um, it, it, was, it reached everyone. When that took place and then you, you moved on and, and you found it on Orthodox Ventures, what what are common pitfalls that you see founders commit very often and 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 what do you believe and maybe as some advice of how how to how to avoid those pitfalls i tell you the well there's a number of things but i think that the primary problem a lot of them do not have a, a business plan. And I mean a business plan. I don't mean, you know, oh, we're going to sell $10 million worth in, you know, in year three and then 14 and four. I mean, that's just horseshit. Right. Not, I mean, not, just, yeah, not the perfect, not the projections, not the financial, right. Yeah. But an actual, how are you going to make money? Yeah, exactly. And, and part of that is, is, Research and this is market research because an awful lot of people do not understand the market that they're trying to get into. And, and, and well, I have people I talk to all the time that they're just trying to do something that they don't know anything about. And, and you ask them, fine, okay, where are you going to? I mean, who's the customer? Why is, why is this, why is this the, why are these people going to be your customers? What's going to move them? Well, you know, it's like, it's better. And it's like, oh, for God's sakes. I mean, you've got, this is a real, I mean, going into business, it's not, I mean, you read a lot of, I think there's too much written in, in a lot of respects. Mm. They make it sound like it's like everybody does it and it's really easy and everybody succeeds. But I was reading something, you know, the, the likelihood of you getting, to a hundred million dollars in revenue, starting a business, it's like six out of a hundred thousand. It's a ridiculous number. It's very <laughs> difficult, and most of them, most businesses fail because they just don't take care of the basics. And the basics are: this isn't what you know. This is this may not be what you wanted to do your entire life. I mean, who really cares? I mean, the object of this is to support yourself, to build a company, to support yourself and, and others. And in order to do that, you have to think about it. It can't just be something you like to do. And a lot of people don't do that. I mean, they just don't think about it. And then uh, some of them have technical expertise so that they're able to, to construct the product, but there's no way they're ever gonna sell it. And then they look for money, which is another thing Com totally, completely. I mean, it's a different realm. And I will say this, that it, I, I bootstrapped. There's a lot of problems with bootstrapping. It takes a lot of time. It took me 20 years to do what I did. Mm. And if I had the money and if I had the brains to know what to do with the money, I could have done it faster. But the downside of VCs, and this is what we do, the downside of that and I just told somebody this the other day. I don't know if, the, well, I think they appreciated it. I said that this is the most expensive money you'll ever, ever get. The most hmm. expensive money. Because this, we're not a bank. 
And if you haven't planned this out and if you don't know what you're doing and you don't know how much money it's gonna take you to build this, to get it to break even and beyond, you're making a mistake. But a lot of people don't. And, and, and I always tell people that you're asking us for money and I would be happy, happy, happy if I was able to convince you that you could do it on your own. Now, the thing about doing it on your own is it takes time. Time. And the yeah. only thing money does really, but you have to know what you're doing. You have to think about it. You have to plan. So the only thing that it does is it saves you time. That's all it is. And so instead of 20 years, maybe it takes you seven years. And that's a big deal. Yeah, that that is that, it's great to be able to highlight that. And I'm glad that your previous was bootstrapped so you can give us that perspective. Do you think if if you would have received money if for a big ass fans that, you know, it would be where it is or would it? I don't know. I think that in the beginning, maybe not. As it developed, yes, certainly. But then once you knew I, your product it, market fit, once you knew exactly your customer, and it was mostly about scaling, then that's when it would be. I'm guessing it would have been super helpful. No, it would have been. It would have been more advantageous. But that brings up something else. I think that in terms of what a mistake people make is. And after this, I'll get to the Q and A. I saw I saw the comments here. Okay, no, that's good. Is is making sure that you're charging enough for your product or your service because there's an awful lot of people that that imagine that you know if it costs me a dollar, I'm going to sell it for two dollars. Well, good luck because you're never going to get you're never going to make it, and you have to be your gross margins have to be sufficient to support your product iterations and your development and your marketing and your people. I mean, we did everything. We built everything in the States. The Well, we had one exception when we were building fans for the Asian market. We, we had a plant, our own plant. Over there. Right. Our own but for the most part, it was all American made. Yeah. So we can control it. Well, thank you very much, Kerry. Again, thank you for the time. All the best. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye.